Great. I think I'm getting sick. I should probably go to the doctor before I get any worse. Hmm. Your throat looks really red, Issa. Do you have a sore throat? This morning, I definitely noticed a sore throat, and it's gotten a lot worse throughout the day. I can barely drink water now. That sounds like strep throat to me. Let's test you for it and see what the results say. Hi, doctor. Any news? As I suspected, your test came back positive for Streptococcus pyogenes, a type of bacteria that is currently the cause of your bad sore throat. I'm going to prescribe you a course of antibiotic penicillin. You're going to take one pill twice a day for 10 days. Does that sound good, Issa? Yes. Thank you, doctor. It's been almost a week since I started taking the antibiotics, and all my symptoms are gone already. I should probably save the rest of the penicillin in case I get sick again in the future. All it takes is a simple assumption, and in Issa's case, she would come to regret her decision to not finish her full course of antibiotics. Uh, I feel even worse this time, doctor, and it's only been a week since I stopped taking the antibiotics. A week? You should have only finished the treatment a few days ago. Did you stop taking the pills? Well... Yeah, I thought that since I felt fine, I didn't have to keep taking the antibiotic. Besides, it was giving me a stomachache. What does that have to do with me being sick now? Well, it has a lot to do with it. Not only is your strep throat back, but now it's also resistant to the antibiotic I gave you, so it won't work anymore. I'm going to have to give you another course of stronger antibiotics this time. I'm Isa. I'm Rama. I'm Matt. And you're listening to State of the Pod. Everyone gets sick, but nobody likes being sick. Viruses and bacteria have lived alongside humans throughout history, constantly evolving new ways to trick our body's defenses and infect us. Up until recently, we were constantly at the mercy of pathogens. Getting sick could spell a death sentence for even the healthiest person in the 1800s. In 1928, however, modern medicine discovered a new weapon against infections, penicillin. The discovery of penicillin as the first antibiotic marked a massive shift in the way society treated sickness from then on. Finally, we had a way of directly killing the bacteria inside our bodies that were making us sick. In the decades that followed, more antibiotics were discovered and their effects became better understood. Today, nearly every human with reliable access to healthcare has taken antibiotics at least once in their lifetime. The world has become much more educated on the concept of bacterial infections, and what was once a death sentence is now a regular sickness that can be resolved within a week with the right pill. Up until the 1940s, people were able to walk into a pharmacy and buy antibiotics over the counter. I know, crazy to think about that today, right? However, this open access use gave rise to the hidden problem. That problem is antibiotic resistance. It began in hospitals, where doctors began noticing that penicillin would lose its effectiveness in patients with recurrent bacterial infections. Eventually, certain sicknesses could not be treated at all with penicillin, and a different antibiotic had to be used to treat the infection. 
Doctors in the U.S. became concerned, and the government responded by passing laws that now prohibited the purchase of certain medications at pharmacies unless you had a signed note from a doctor stating that you needed the medication. Thus, the concept of prescriptions was born. It's surprising to hear that in less than 100 years, we saw the discovery of antibiotics, their success, and then their subsequent decline in effectiveness as a result of antibiotic resistance. We can even thank antibiotic resistance for the invention of prescriptions. However, despite the restrictions we place on access to these types of medications, antibiotic resistance has remained a growing problem, and today, it's only gotten scarier. In this episode, we will discuss the concept of antibiotic resistance, what causes it, how it affects us, and what is being done to combat it. You will hear from experts who have stood at the forefront of the fight against antibiotic resistance and learn what you can do to avoid developing antibiotic resistance when you inevitably get sick next time. Antibiotics are compounds that either kill bacteria directly or inhibit their ability to grow and reproduce, allowing your immune system to clear the infection. It's important to emphasize that antibiotics only target bacterial infections, not viral infections. While antibiotics seemed like a miracle cure at first, bacteria have since evolved ways of resisting the effects of these drugs. This phenomenon where bacteria change genetically over successive generations to develop immunity to antibiotics is known as antibiotic resistance. Antibiotic resistance arises due to a combination of natural selection pressures and the misuse of antibiotics. When an antibiotic is used to treat an infection, most bacteria will die, but a small number may have a random DNA mutation that will allow them to survive the antibiotic's effects. These resistant bacteria can then multiply, spread, and eventually dominate the bacterial population. At the same time, inadequate patient compliance, for example, when patients don't take their full course of antibiotics, and the overprescription of antibiotics provide more opportunities for resistance to emerge and propagate. Many factors contribute, but the end result is bacteria that antibiotics can no longer treat. Resistant infections pose numerous dangers. They are difficult to cure, often requiring more expensive or toxic last line antibiotics. This leads to worse health outcomes like prolonged illness and high mortality rates. Antibiotic resistance not only reduces the effectiveness of individual drugs, but it also sometimes eliminates entire classes of antibiotics. Alarmingly, several common pathogens like MRSA, which you may have heard of before, have evolved resistance to multiple antibiotic groups. With few current replacement options in the drug development pipeline, this significantly shrinks our therapeutic arsenal. Antibiotic resistance doesn't just impact human health either. Its effects ripple through healthcare systems and beyond. Treating resistant infections requires longer hospital stays and isolation measures to prevent transmission. Alternative antibiotics can cost thousands of dollars more per patient. Estimates from the CDC's Antibiotic Resistance Threats Report indicate antibiotic resistance is responsible for over 2.8 million infections, 35,000 deaths, and $4.5 billion in excess healthcare spending annually in the United States alone. Without intervention, some projections forecast 10 million deaths worldwide due to resistant pathogens each year by 2050. This threat has not gone unnoticed, however. 
Combating antibiotic resistance is now a high policy priority worldwide, but coordinated global action encompassing more prudent antibiotic prescribing, infection control, surveillance, public awareness, and accelerated drug development will be crucial to change the course. We face a profound crisis of antibiotic resistance, and though the road is uncertain, overcoming this challenge is imperative to save modern medicine as we know it. Antibiotic resistance, like most things, comes in many different forms. From a protein that directly attacks the antibiotic to an antibiotic target gene mutations, the possibilities for bacteria to develop resistance are endless. To really dive deep into how resistance arises and takes hold in a population, we've invited two experts to join us in this episode. The first is Dr. Dorr. I'm a bacterial cell biologist and geneticist, and my lab works on how bacteria survive stressful conditions, including exposure to antibiotics. Could you explain the biology behind how antibiotic resistance arises in a microbial population? For example, after someone takes an antibiotic? So there are two main pathways, I would say, and let's start with the, with the simplest one. Uh, the simplest one is if a bacterium acquires a gene that uh, enables it to destroy the antibiotic. So the gene codes for a protein and that protein will uh, destroy the antibiotic. And, and there's a large variety of these types of genes around. And if they end up on what we call a mobile genetic element, which is a piece of DNA that can be freely exchanged between different bacteria, that can be quite dangerous. So then the bacteria can actually exchange this information, can exchange this, this uh, gene coding for this protein and enable each other to destroy an antibiotic and grow freely in its presence. So that's the first mechanism. The second major mechanism is actually through mutations. So um, antibiotics typically bind to uh, proteins and, and various other targets in the bacterial cell. So all the bacteria has to do is change that target in a way that the, that the antibiotic doesn't bind anymore. And that typically happens through mutations, which are changes in the DNA sequence that cause the, uh, an, an encoding protein to be a little bit different. And sometimes that difference actually makes it resistant against antibiotic binding. This is extremely alarming, considering that most deadly pathogens divide relatively fast, meaning if they can survive the antibiotics we have against them, they can quickly colonize your body. For example, E. coli, a bacteria commonly found in improperly cooked meats like beef or vegetables like lettuce, only takes 20 minutes to duplicate. I guess, leading into that in a grander scheme, when you're thinking about communities and antibiotic use, how does antibiotic resistance arise at the community level, and how are they affected? Most antibiotic resistance mechanism that exists and that we find in the clinic actually exist in nature already. And in fact, there has been a study where people looked at permafrost, 30,000-year-old uh, soil, and they found uh, resistance mechanisms against most, if not all, currently available antibiotics. Bacteria are already primed to, to, to develop resistance because before we started using antibiotics clinically, bacteria actually used to use them to keep, kill each other. So if you are in a soil environment, let's say, and you're surrounded by bacteria and you are a bacterial cell, um, there's strong competition for nutrients. So the best way to deal with that is, is, I guess, to kill off all the competition. So you produce an antibiotic and other bacteria get killed off and they can, you can use all the nutrients. And so in response, these other bacteria have developed resistance mechanisms. And those are the same that we see in the clinic right now. So that's how resistance doesn't quite necessarily develop in communities, but is already always there. 
And then uh, when we start using antibiotics um, uh, at a large scale and in a clinical setting, then we select for those specific bacteria that are resistant against the antibiotic. And so now the entire population becomes resistant, and that makes spread of this resistance much easier because that fully resistant population can, for example, interact with other bacterial species and then transfer the resistance. So that's, by and large, how antibiotic resistance develops. Into my follow-up question, actually, which antibiotics are currently the most susceptible to antibiotic resistance? So the ones I guess we're most worried about right now are the so-called beta-lactams. So that's, um, most people probably have heard of penicillin. That's the stereotypical, the first beta-lactam. And those are really good antibiotics because they're not very toxic in in humans and they target something in the bacterial cell that uh, humans don't have. So the target is unique to bacteria and these antibiotics rapidly kill bacteria rather than just inhibiting their growth. So they're very powerful drugs. The problem is um, they're also natural antibiotics. And so many bacteria encode enzymes that are called beta-lactamases that um, degrade the the beta-lactams, that destroy them. And we've sort of, as um, developers of antibiotics, we've played catch up with this whole process. So we develop a new antibiotic, a new beta-lactam that can't be cleaved by these enzymes. And then the bacteria respond by mutating that enzyme and now finding a way to cleave that new beta-lactam antibiotic. And that always happens very fast because it's typically very small changes in the enzyme that enable it to degrade a new new compound pretty fast. And so that's that's one of the, I would say, the, the antibiotics we're most worried about, especially since the beta-lactams are just the, the sometimes the first and last resort in treatment of bacterial infections. Which bacteria are the ones developing antibiotic resistance the fastest? So currently, the, the most worrisome ones are uh, summarized in a group called ESCAPE pathogens, E-S-K-A-P-E. And this is an acronym that the CDC coined. Uh, it stands for a group of bacteria that are most rapid in their acquisition of antibiotic resistance. And the E, for example, stands for Enterococcus faecium. Um, the K in there is for Klebsiella pneumoniae. Uh, and so those are um, bacteria that are currently pretty rapid in their acquisition of antibiotic resistance. And those are, this is what we're most worried about. That's really interesting, Dr. Doerr. Could you also explain what gram-negative bacteria are? Yes, so that uh, designation gram-negative, gram-positive, has something to do with the the shell that surrounds a bacterium. So you can kind of imagine a bacterium being an egg with an eggshell, and sometimes the eggshell is a little bit more complex and sometimes a little bit less complex. So in the gram-positive bacteria, um, the shell basically consists of a membrane, and then on top of that membrane you have what is called the cell wall, which is just a very thick shell surrounding the entire bacterium. The gram-negative bacteria then on top of that have a second membrane, and that second membrane is very complex. It consists of various sugar residues. It's, it has both hydrophobic and hydrophilic um, properties, meaning it can be both, uh, um, if, or it's, it's impenetrable basically to a variety of compounds. And so most antibiotics have to reach some target inside of the cell in order to be effective. And you can imagine that you have this very complex second layer of, uh, of, of the cell envelope. It's much more difficult for antibiotics to get through that. Um, and that means two things. It, it means that um, it's very hard to find new compounds, new antibiotics that target gram negatives because of this penetration issue. Uh, but it also means that many of the compounds that we have right now are ineffective against them. And it also provides gram-negative bacteria with another layer of uh, potential resistance development. So many bacteria uh, simply have to mutate some aspect of their outer membrane, and now the outer membrane, the second membrane, becomes even less permeable 
to an antibiotic. And at the same time, gram-negative bacteria are some of our most, de most debilitating pathogens, um, so they are responsible for a variety of really debilitating diseases. Right now, one of the most uh, uh, notorious uh, pathogens that we worry about is Acinetobacter baumannii. Um, it's one that usually affects people with burn wounds, for example, and, and can cause pretty debilitating infections there. And it also has this nasty habit of being really resistant against uh, a huge number of antibiotics, and that's a gram-negative. It's also part of the escape, so it's the, the A in escape pathogens. Why do you think the media focuses a lot on gram-negative bacteria when talking about antibiotic resistance? I think it's really just, it just um, is a focus because these are so difficult to treat. So that some of our most difficult to treat infections currently are caused by gram-negatives. Antibiotic resistance presents a broader concern beyond clinical environments, extending its repercussions to various aspects of health, including potential links to issues like indigestion and heightened risks of depression and anxiety. Each year, the Center for Disease Control estimates that 47 million antibiotic courses are prescribed unnecessarily for many conditions. Some of these conditions include viruses like the flu. The biggest issue here is not only the overuse of antibiotics, but also the misuse. Notably, antibiotics cannot be used to treat viruses. The copious overutilization of antibiotics is contributing to the rising occurrence of antibiotic resistance, depletion of microbial diversity, and changes in the metabolic states within the population. These consequences become more alarming when we acknowledge that annually in the U.S., over 2.8 million infections are attributed to antibiotic-resistant bacteria. Whenever antibiotics are taken, there's a consistent risk of eliminating harmless yet integral bacteria as these medications do not specifically target only harmful pathogens. This risk is only exacerbated by the increasing prevalence of unnecessary and potent antibiotic usage. When we overconsume antibiotics, the likelihood of issues like dysbiosis, a condition in which the gut microbiome becomes dysregulated, also exponentially increases. Conditions like dysbiosis can have adverse effects on our health because our gut microbiome plays a crucial role in supporting our overall well-being. This is accomplished through mechanisms including assisting in various processes like digestion. Our gut is home to between 300 and 500 unique species of bacteria. Each microorganism has a unique role in our body. For example, bacteriodetes help us break down complex carbohydrates that we otherwise would be unable to digest. Other common inhabitants of our digestive tract include ruminococcaceae, which produces short-chain fatty acids by fermenting dietary fiber. These short-chain fatty acids exhibit anti-inflammatory effects as well as metabolic benefits. Our microbiota are also integral to our immune function since they can train the immune system to recognize pathogens and maintain tolerance to advantageous bacteria. They also act as a line of defense against damaging pathogens like Clostridium difficile, or C. diff, which can cause severe damage to the colon and digestive tract. Our healthy microbiota do this by fulfilling the niches in our body and outcompeting the deadly pathogens and thus preventing their proliferation. The beneficial roles played by our friendly microorganisms are significantly impeded by the use of antibiotics. For example, you are up to 10 times more likely to get C. diff while on antibiotics and in the month after you complete your antibiotic course. Additionally, there is an elevated risk of experiencing digestive issues with, for instance, one in five individuals on broad-spectrum antibiotics developing diarrhea or other gastrointestinal concerns. According to the World Health Organization, 
the rates of bacterial infection complications, like C. diff, are only going to increase in the next two decades. We invited our second expert to talk about this issue with us. I'm uh, Dr. Vincent Fischetti. I'm uh, head of the Laboratory of Bacterial Pathogenesis and Immunology at the Rockefeller University. One of the driving causes of this issue is that, as Dr. Fischetti puts it, when we go to the doctor feeling under the weather, we expect to get antibiotics. This issue of overuse is only exacerbated in places where the regulations on antibiotics is lower. Antibiotics are not controlled. For example, in Mexico or some foreign countries where you can get antibiotics over the counter. So people are treating themselves or a lot of antibiotics are being used uh, indiscriminately. We are also facing the issue that we are not producing new antibiotics fast enough to keep up with the mutating strains. And the reason for this lag in production is not just the ingenuity of the pathogens we are targeting, but also the pharmaceutical industry itself. The problem with that is um, that uh, many biotech companies don't focus on that anymore because there's not much money in antibiotics. Uh, there's more money in the types of compounds that you take for your entire life. So, for example, blood pressure medication, uh, cholesterol, right? So these types of things, they, they, they are the big money makers, and many, many biotech companies have abandoned antibiotic research. And you can be cynical about it and, and you know, complain, but, I mean, it's, it's, it, it is what it is, and companies need to make money, and, and this doesn't help them make money. Um, so now there's this, this sort of new group of, of smaller companies that come up uh, that tackle that and sort of fill that space and, uh, and develop new antibiotics, and they often spawn off of academia. Um, the issue is, of course, that if I, I can run a drug screen, I can maybe find a new compound, I will never be able to develop that into a full drug because the clinical trials are incredibly expensive, they take a very long time, and I don't have the resources to do that. So you need this well-oiled machine uh, to make that happen. At the same time, the companies, their job is not to do basic research, so they don't do what I do and can't find these new targets potentially. Uh, so you have to kind of combine these two things. Um, and there could be more of that, that you have more of a pipeline from academia into industry. And so Cornell, for example, is doing a good job at that because um, it's, it, it, it's, it tries very hard to promote this entrepreneurship, um, where if I have an idea for a commercializable product, there, there are a lot of resources available to do that and to start a small company that then hopefully develops the product, the antibiotic, to a point where a larger company becomes interested and, and, and picks that up. Uh, but that right now is the roadblock that we... Um, it takes a very long time to get an antibiotic to market, and there's sort of a disconnect between the entities that can actually develop the antibiotic to market and those that develop new targets for antibiotics and, and do the drug screens potentially. Beyond health concerns, antibiotic resistance strains healthcare systems and raises ethical quandaries for providers. Treating resistance infections is enormously taxing on hospitals' resources. Patients require isolation, more staff, expensive last resort antibiotics, costing thousands per patients, and extended stays. This diverts funds from other hospital services and reduces bed availability. Clinicians also face difficult prescribing decisions, needing to balance immediate patient demands with judicious antibiotic use to avoid fueling resistance. Patients frequently request antibiotics for viral illnesses where they provide no benefit. Yet, explaining why antibiotics are unnecessary can be a challenging and seemingly uncompassionate when patients want relief. As Dr. Fischetti highlighted, When you go to the doctor, the antibiotic will not cure a viral infection, it'll only cure a bacterial infection. So, but we always demand that we get some antibiotic before we leave the doctor's office. 
doctors must weigh various ethical principles regarding antibiotic prescriptions. Giving antibiotics reinforces unrealistic expectations, misuse, and resistance, harming public health. A study by Carl Lohr found that overprescribing stems from various factors like patient satisfaction, legal concerns, and social norms, not clinical need alone. Withholding antibiotics risks patient dissatisfaction and can even infer legal liability due to the risk of missing a bacterial infection. This tension leaves physicians in an ethical dilemma. Hospitals now confront rising superbug cases too. Patients admitted for routine procedures risk acquiring resistant hospital-onset infections, turning minor surgeries into life-threatening crises. Alarmingly, facilities sometimes halt doing higher-risk operations due to high infection rates from pervasive resistant pathogens. The increasing risk of contracting these superbugs jeopardizes access and continuity of medical care. And, and we know we're, we're a country that, that are, are so successful in surgical procedures that, you know, people don't even think twice, oh, I'll get a new knee, I'll, 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 you know, I'll, I'll get a new hip and whatever, not a problem. But if you tell them that you can't get that hip, you can't get that, that cardiac surgery because of inf infection rates are too high in that hospital, that's a big problem. I think that's what needs to be accentuated a little bit more because it impacts, it's going to impact our ability to perform standard surgeries. And I don't think people understand that. Antibiotic resistance also does not impact all groups equally. While overuse drives resistance in wealthy countries, access remains a barrier elsewhere. Low-resource nations with weak healthcare systems shoulder the highest resistance rates and deaths, yet they contribute minimally to the problem from underprescribing. For example, a 2021 study by Roni Huiz found that low- and middle-income countries experience 9 in 10 malaria deaths from drug resistance, showing the disproportionate impact faced. This global inequality around the quote-unquote post-antibiotic era adds ethical dimensions of distributive justice. With few new antibiotics to replace the failing ones, antibiotic resistance leaves clinicians stranded ethically. The CDC estimates resistant infections could cause 10 million annual deaths by 2050, eclipsing cancer. Avoiding this fate requires nuanced prescribing policies and practices that balance immediate clinical needs against long-term societal harms. There are no easy solutions, but creative ethical programs emphasizing education and shared decision-making are vital to temper the growth of antibiotic resistance until we reinvent our antibiotic arsenal. One major issue causing these ethical dilemmas and overall resistance is the failure to research and develop new antibiotics. If we had a larger supply of antibiotics, these issues would not be as large of a threat as doctors could prescribe different antibiotics for different illnesses, reducing the prescription of the same antibiotics and therefore reducing the threat of resistance. Some companies are attempting to develop new antibiotics to treat these issues, but of course there are always obstacles. Developing new antibiotics to address resistance faces severe financial barriers, as explored in a recent Wall Street Journal piece. Despite the clear need for new drugs, antibiotics make for poor long-term investments. As writer Sarah Toy explains, because they're only taken for short periods of time, 
antibiotics are nowhere near as profitable as drugs that treat chronic conditions. This lack of profitability has driven most pharmaceutical companies out of antibiotic research and development, or R&D, altogether. Per the article, only four major drug makers, GlaxoSmithKline PLC, Merck & Co, Pfizer Inc, and Roche Holding AG, still have active antibiotic research programs. Even antibiotic startups struggle, often folding after their first FDA-approved drug fails commercially because hospitals are reluctant to purchase new antibiotics upfront without real-world evidence of value over existing options. The collapse of pharmaceutical company Acagen exemplifies these commercialization hurdles. As quoted, though the company had raised more than $700 million in funding and developed Zemdri for hard-to-treat infections, after its 2019 approval, shares plummeted as the company struggled to line up hospitals willing to purchase the drug. Unable to make sales and facing repayment of leftover research debts, Acagen soon filed for bankruptcy. This liquidation pattern persists across antibiotic startups. According to venture capitalist Kevin Outerson from Carbex, there have been seven approved antibiotics since 2017. Four of those seven have already filed for bankruptcy or been liquidated. It's evident that replenishing the antibiotic pipeline requires surmounting this failure cycle. Experts now push to rethink how antibiotics are reimbursed to assist developers financially. Specific proposals include subscriptions to new antibiotics for a set period of time after FDA approval. Others advocate buying out companies post-approval to keep antibiotics available, an approach attempted with Acaeogen. Shielding new market entrants from immediate profit pressures aids sustainability. Enacting new reimbursement frameworks will be essential to spur and sustain antibiotic innovation. As Outerson concludes, the antibiotic market is broken. If we just sit here and do nothing, it's going to be a very bleak future. Mobilizing around this existential threat now by funding R&D and purchases of next-generation antibiotics provides a pathway through resistance's gathering storm. Amid the grim outlook of expanding antibiotic resistance, some solutions have been proposed. Dr. Fischetti, head of the Laboratory of Bacterial Pathogenesis and Immunology at Rockefeller University, has been a pioneer in developing bacteriophage lysins as novel antibacterial agents. Lysins are enzymes naturally produced by bacterial viruses to burst open host cells during infection. Dr. Fischetti's groundbreaking work has engineered lysins to specifically target and rapidly kill pathogenic bacteria. After decades of studying these enzymes, his lab has uncovered that lysins face no resistance. With the resistance crisis accelerating, lysin therapy may provide a key successor to traditional antibiotics whose utility continues to wane. Could you tell me about your research on using bacteriophages and phage lysins to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria? So, so lysin, let me, let me explain what lysins are compared to phage. So phage, bacteriophage or phage, are viruses that infect bacteria only. They don't infect human tissue. So they only infect bacteria. So the phage, when they infect the bacteria, they get into the bacteria and they replicate inside that bacteria. So when one phage goes into an organism, it replicates and a and hundred viruses are now produced inside that bacteria. And those viruses need to get out to infect other bacteria. And the way the phage does this, it produces an enzyme that kills the bacteria that is infected. And by destroying the bacteria, 
the progeny phage come out to infect other other bacteria. So what we've done is harness the power of that enzyme that the phage use to kill the bacteria, and we can use it to also kill bacteria. But you don't have to get involved with the with the virus or the phage at all. The the enzyme itself does the job of killing the bacteria. Due to this lack of resistance against lysins, lysins can be used to prevent an infection unlike antibiotics. Additionally, phage therapy is a more popular alternative to lysins. But what is phage therapy? The phage therapy is using the whole virus to kill the bacteria. Because as I explained earlier, the virus goes in, replicates, and eventually kills the bacteria, right? With the lysin, but the, the bacteria is, is killed. So certain people are using the whole virus to, to kill the bacteria during an infection. So you have now the, the lysin itself, the purified protein that is the ultimate kill, or the whole process of the whole virus infecting, going in, replicating, and killing the organism. And there's a whole industry of, of phage therapy that people are trying to use as a way, as a way to, to uh, uh, overcome the resistance issue. The problem is, I'll just give you the one problem, there are other problems with phage therapy, and that is you see resistance all the time with phage therapy. In fact, you see resistance more often than you see with antibiotic resistance. But despite that, the, it, phage therapy gets more publicity than lysin therapy because it's been around longer. Unfortunately for now, both of these antibiotic alternatives are still in clinical trials awaiting approval. Regardless, their significant progress and solutions towards antibiotic resistance make them great alternatives in the coming years should they be approved. I honestly feel like this issue is a double-edged sword in all respects, which makes it such a unique one to tackle. From the clinical dilemma to the personal one, the fact of the matter is, if we truly want to make meaningful strides towards a healthier world, we have to scrutinize antibiotic use and reevaluate our treatment in developing systems. Personally, I think this review can take the form of implementing public health programs, including antibiotic awareness, education in schools, as well as paths focused on the basic sciences and government control of antibiotic dosages and use. But honestly, whatever the solution is, it needs to be worldwide, because ultimately, no matter how much one country does, if the world does not come together to battle this issue, there is little to no hope in fostering efficient and effective advancements. Hearing insights from leaders like Dr. Fischetti reveals the intricacies of antibiotic resistance, but also why resolve must start today, as Dr. Fischetti emphasized. I think it's a, it's a very, very serious problem that people are not taking seriously. They're really not taking this seriously. Personally, I feel real change relies on federal leadership to fund new antibiotic development as companies lack market incentives alone. And improving public knowledge that inappropriate antibiotic use precipitates resistance is essential so that we avoid misconceptions that they are cure-alls for every illness. Our health now and for future generations depends on doubling down on science along with community awareness to counter this crisis. Personally, and similar to Rama and Matt, I think the first step we need to take to combat this issue also lies in raising awareness and educating the public. As we explained earlier, many people still think that antibiotics can treat viral infection, and this contributes firsthand to the massive ethical dilemma doctors face when a patient comes into their office demanding antibiotics. 
Educating the public about safe antibiotic usage will not only help lessen this issue, but it will also increase trust between doctors and their patients. Education and awareness also help to increase public support for antibiotic development by putting more pressure on governments and companies to allocate more financial support to this problem. We need new antibiotics, but we also need more people to demand the research into new antibiotics is expanded and maintained. There is also a lot we weren't able to cover in this episode that we suggest you look into if you would like to learn more. For example, there are larger scale contributors to antibiotic resistance other than those we discussed, such as the agricultural and meat industries, which have a long history of antibiotic use and pose additional limitations to the problem of antibiotic resistance. There are also recent discoveries in the world of bacteria and antibiotic resistance that show promise, such as the recent discovery of a new antibiotic called clovibactin that can apparently treat gram-positive bacterial infections without generating antibiotic resistance. Of course, there's a lot of research that remains to be done. As we reflect on the issue of antibiotic resistance, Let's consult our experts again and see what they have to say about how we can start making progress in this field. Dr. Dorr, what's your opinion? I think what really needs to happen is the public needs to lobby the government for more basic science funding and the government needs to listen to that. So it's basically, uh, we need these diagnostics to be developed. We also need uh, academia industry partnerships to develop new antibiotics. And all of this is happening to a degree, but it's usually happening on the individual level and not so much broadly coordinated. Uh, Cornell is actually trying to change that. So we just, um, I'm, I'm, I'm part of this initiative where we're starting this uh, Center for Antimicrobial Resistance Education and Research. And it incorporates all of this. So it, it incorporates public education. Beyond being politically involved, do you think the general public has an obligation to educate themselves on this topic and make better informed decisions? I would turn this around and say it's our job to inform the public. Uh, because as a, um, as a layperson, I can't expect you to read papers and, and inform yourself about these things. So this is, this is what the center also uh, aims to do. And then also strengthening basic research and especially the de development of, of diagnostics. And so that means basically, um, plain and simple, more money for uh, things like the NIH, the National Institutes of Health, but also the NSF, the National Science Foundation, which is funds more basic science research, which is um, incredibly important because very often we don't know where the breakthroughs come from. You mentioned that one of the main roles the government should play is with funding for basic research sciences, and we agree with that. But what are some other? Yeah, that's much harder to answer. Uh, especially, and this is why this this effort actually also has to include people like um, people from the humanities and people who know how to communicate, people who uh, know how to communicate with stakeholders, um, because it's not simple. If the government basically tells you uh, don't take too many antibiotics, this is not going to work, right? Um, so you have to be a little, I, I, I think what the government can do is, of course, uh, can ban practices that are very clearly contributing to antibiotic resistance development. And so being more highly regulated or, or having more regulated use of antibiotics in veterinary medicine, that's where the government can play a role. Um, yeah, so that sort of uh, quality control issues, I think. And apart from that, providing funding and, and maybe also uh, promoting the CDC, which is which is also uh, kind of um, 
uh, dropped off the radar in the last few years, I guess, that the CDC is in, in, in pretty dire straits. But these types of institutions, the public health institutions, uh, CDC in New York, it's actually the Wadsworth Center in, in Albany, strengthening those institutions can really help because they're sort of the sentinels. So if a new antibiotic resistance factor pops up somewhere, uh, they can coordinate with, with academia, with industry, with uh, response teams uh, to curb that potentially and, and, and find mitigating measures. It's a double-edged sword. Embrace complexity. Don't expect simple answers because there are none. And especially in antibiotic resistance, it's a very complicated thing. The general public, I would just say, appreciate basic science and, and appreciate the complexity. State of the Pod would like to thank Dr. Fischetti and Dr. Dorr for their contributions to this episode. A special thank you as well to the Cornell Department of Investigative Biology for our recording equipment and software.